welcome to the Karen Kenny Show. This is the place where we take a no bullshit look at life's little lessons. Here, together, we find the spiritual glory in even the most wicked hard story. This is a journey from fear back to love and how we can find our greatest strength and happiness in some of the most unlikely places. I believe that if you're willing to change your mind, you can totally change your life. So, are you ready to rewrite your story and choose to live free? Let's do this. Hey, you guys, welcome to the Karen Kenny Show. I am just so delighted and wicked excited to introduce you to my very special guest today. So first of all, I'll tell you um, his name and how I met him and why I'm having him on the podcast. So his pen name or as how people might know him, um, that they people who follow him online on Instagram, they may know him as J.S. Pack, P-A-R-K, Pack. Um, his first name is June, J-O-O-N. So I referred to him both as J.S. and also I call him by his given name, which is June. And I first discovered June online. I came across his writing and I was so moved by it. And I was so just excited by um his honesty and his vulnerability and his storytelling and the way that his, um, his, the things that he shared just really landed in my heart and I got wicked curious. And so that's what I always do. If I discover a person, a place, a program, a product, a thing, an animal, whatever the thing is, a being that lights me up, that grabs my curiosity, that makes me feel things, that inspires me, that moves me, that makes me want to know more, makes me want to share about what they're up to. Uh, that's always a wicked good sign to me. When I feel lit up, I follow that shit. <laughs> so when I first came across June, uh, like I said, or JS, as some people might know him online, I was like, I have to find out more about this guy. So I went to his, you know, I track things down. I'm a little bit like of a detective in that way. I often joke and say that in another life, I would have been either a librarian or a detective. Um, or obviously I would have a big ass animal sanctuary, <laughs> but here's the thing. So I used my little detective skills and uh, I found his blog spot or his website. And I found this very short and succinct bio that fascinated me. And uh, I read it again in the, um, the full length of the episode, but I'm going to share it again here and maybe it will pique your curiosity too and make you want to listen to the whole episode. So this is what it says. J.S. Pack is a hospital chaplain, a former atheist slash agnostic, a six degree black belt, suicide survivor, Korean American and loves Jesus. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I am hooked. Sign me up. Let's go. Let's find out more about this beautiful human being. I was just so fascinated by this. Of course. Now remember, I'd already been reading um, 
his beautiful words and his poignant words and his powerful stories about what it's like to be an interfaith uh, chaplain in uh, in a thousand bed hospital in Tampa, Florida, right? And he works in one of the top ranked hospitals in the nation. Uh, And he was also a chaplain for like three years at one of the largest nonprofit charities for the homeless uh, on the East Coast. He's also the author of, I think, like eight books. Uh, I have four of them. And his most recent book that was published by um, Northfield Moody is called The Voices We Carry, Finding Your One True Voice in a World of Clamor and Noise. He's also a husband and a dad. He has the cutest little girl. And um, we talked about so many powerful things and I don't want to ruin it for you. Uh, so I'm just going to say, if this has piqued your curiosity um, and you want to know more, buckle up, buckle up and join us for this fantastic conversation with my guest, June, also known as J.S. Park. Hey, you guys, welcome to the Karen Kenny Show. I just can't even tell you. I can tell my heart's pounding a little bit right now because I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today. And I'm first going to let him say hi, and then I'm going to read a little snippet of his bio. Um, and just to tell you why I invited him on the show, why I'm wicked excited to have him here as my guest and to introduce him to all of you. Uh, so June Pak, thank you so much for being on the show. Karen, thank you. And I want to lift you up for your kindness before we started and just your flexibility. And you're so kind and so accommodating. So I appreciate you so much. And thank you for having me here. Yeah, it is. It's a total pleasure. So you guys, as you know, as loyal listeners, um, I normally don't read somebody's bio right up front. I'll do it in the special intro. But J.S., as he's also known online, right? In this interview, I'll be calling him June, his given name, his birth name. Um, so he is he is many things. And one of those things is that besides being an interfaith chaplain and all these other things, you're also a writer. And I found on your website, um, your blog spot or your website, the, the words that you chose to describe yourself, I thought were so fascinating. So I just want to read it here because it's going to be wicked fast. So you guys listen to this. So uh, J.S. Pak is a hospital chaplain, a former atheist slash agnostic, six degree black belt, suicide survivor, Korean American, and loves Jesus. You're the author, I added this PS, the author of eight books, four of which I have right here, by the way, the author of eight books. His most recent one, which we're gonna talk about today is called The Voices We Carry. And it's about finding your one true voice in a world of clamor and noise. Um, he also currently serves in a thousand plus bed hospital in Tampa, Florida. I love Tampa, by the way. Uh, it's which is one of the top ranked um, hospitals in the nation. And you are also a chaplain for three years at one of the largest nonprofit charities for the homeless on the East Coast. So even just that first sentence, like hospital chaplain, former atheist, now loves Jesus, six degree flag belt, suicide survivor. And I think you're a second generation Korean American, correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot of pack in that little punch. Like I was like, there's a <laughs> lot of punch in that little bit of information. And so the way I always start my show, especially when I have a guest like you on that I'm just wicked excited to have here is that 
often when you get introduced, right? I'm sure on podcasts, you just interviewed uh, the Today Show, right? You were in uh, an online piece for today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times people like to meet us where we are now. So whether it's with your accolades or all your experience and like, you know, what you're doing in the world. And what fascinates me most, especially as a storyteller, is the who piece. Like, who, who were you? What did you go through? What's your origin story to now bring you to this place where you're serving others by being a chaplain, et cetera? So can you just give us like a, a little bit of your origin story? Like, what were you like as a kid? Like, were you shy? Were you weird? Were you sensitive? Were you athletic? Like, I know you had a tough childhood from what I've read, but can you tell us a little bit about you as a little, as little June? Sure, yeah. You know, when you read former atheist agnostic, and then loves Jesus. There's a part of me that wants to expand on that every time because it's like you know in the bio you try to be punchy and brief. Sure. And uh, please feel yeah. free to expand at your. Oh, yeah, well, go ahead. It's, you know, former atheist, but sometimes I miss it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I get it. And I, I've gone back actually to atheism a couple times, uh, especially since I started working in the hospital. Yeah. And then the loves Jesus part, I, I probably would add like. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> yeah, occasionally. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. And, but I guess that's like, because think about that, you know, we are such meaning making machines mm-hmm. and that word, quote unquote, Jesus means so many things, so many different things mm-hmm. to different people. And to say, like, to come right out and say, oh, I love Jesus. People automatically love to slap something onto that, their own meaning of that. So for example, so I'm a spiritual mentor. I, I was a Catholic kid growing up at, at 12 or 13. It was probably like 13, 14. I decided that I was cutting out the middlemen. Like I, I got baptized first communion, did the whole shebang, right? Confirmation. Um, and then I realized like from now on, I basically had a one-to-one with Jesus where I just said, look, from now on, I'm cutting out the middleman. If I got something to say to you, I'm going to say it to you. You got something to say to me, say it to me type of a thing. <laughs> and so my relationship with Jesus is much more with like him as a mystic or a heretic, or I always say too, I love Jesus. In fact, I have a whole wall in front of me by this beautiful, talented artist, um, Young Sung Kim. And he does these super happy, like pictures of Jesus, but I wouldn't say that I'm religious or that I'm attached to any particular religion or organized thing. Like my faith comes through my own lived experience. So when you even say loves Jesus, I understand what you mean when you're like, can I just add on like four more sentences to that? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. um, so I would love to know more about, so what were you like as a kid? Yeah. You know, I did grow up atheist. I grew up in a home. Uh, we grew up pretty poor. My parents are first generation Korean and they met in New York. Um, wow. They didn't come uh, to, from Korea together. When they met in New York, um, they had me almost, uh, I guess, yeah, I guess you could say by accident. They didn't plan on me at all. Yeah. And um, they had one before me. Uh, they chose to have an abortion for the one before me. And then they decided to keep me. And then they moved to Florida because at the time in the 80s, uh, New York for them was not as safe as uh, they wanted. And so growing up, um, I was told early on that I wasn't on purpose. And then my dad 
claimed to be a Christian wasn't didn't always act as maybe a Christian should, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And my mom was kind of like, all of it's true, none of it's true. She was very eclectic. And then I grew up with my grandmother, who was a Shintoist, uh, a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And then my uncle, who he had severe mental illness, uh, schizophrenia and paranoid delusions. And so as a kid, my dad would tell me, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's right, though maybe he didn't know the whole story. My dad would tell me I was really happy and optimistic and laughing all the time and nothing ever bothered me and that I was a good kid. And, and I, would, I would say that that's true, except for the parts that he didn't see, you know. And uh, my mom would tell me I was bright and I was I was smart and intelligent and I picked up on these things quickly. And again, uh, that's I'm sure that's true, um, but it's not the whole story. I don't think either. Um, I remember as a young child, I didn't have the words for it until I was an adult, but uh, I'm pretty sure I was depressed a lot mm-hmm. and uh, grew up in a very violent, turbulent household where I was scared a lot of the time, uh, scared of my parents, scared for my parents. Yes. Um, you know, anxious because of them, but anxious for them. And that is a push and pull that a lot of second generation kids have, uh, a lot of children of immigrants who we attempt to translate for them in a world that is not always kind for them, kind yes. to them. Yes. And so I was worried about them being scammed. I was worried about them being in a world where they didn't understand everything that was happening because of the language barrier and the cultural barrier. Um, there's a, a common thing where children of immigrants, the generation gap is so wide from first generation to second generation that growing up with my parents almost felt culturally like I was with my grandparents, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Relationally, there was that distance there. And uh, so there was a lot of anxiety for me growing up, a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty. And I grew up atheist and God bless all my atheist friends. Like truly, I love them. Uh, I I happened to be a militant, very angry, at times harmful atheist. And again, that's not a knock on any of my atheist friends or atheism at all, because I have gone back to that well. But um just the idea that I was not on purpose, that I was not planned, um, that was very jarring for me. Every time I did something good, I thought I was earning my stay. And and every time I thought I did something bad, I was like, I'm interrupting the timeline. This is a cosmic accident. You know, I am, I'm, I shouldn't be here. I'm causing some kind of unintended butterfly effect and I'm ruining everything. And so that was really my thought. And at, it took me a while uh, to get to the point where faith gave me a story that I don't think everything necessarily happens for a reason, which is a whole other big conversation about pain and suffering. But I do believe that there is a source and a resource that is good Mm -hmm. and that is constant and that is always there for us and present and available. And so that for me, for me, I can say was a very, very big comfort when I came to that in my 20s. And so uh, to answer your question, being a kid, there were a lot of confusing and conflicted stories, even even the things of, uh, even the desire I wanted to be white. I didn't want to be Korean for the longest time. Mm. I assimilated very hard uh, because of trauma. I lost my language at a young, early age. There was a traumatic event that happened when I was very young. And then I assimilated because of that traumatic event. 
And so my Korean speaking is pretty fractured. I'm trying to relearn it now. Mm -hmm. And so this is probably a pretty like uh, not original story with many children of immigrants, but a, but a pretty like uh, a hard one, you know, like um, I have the lunchbox story where I tried to bring, you know, Korean lunch to school when in elementary school and everybody thought it smelled funny. And so I, I asked my parents, can I bring something else? You know, there's almost these staple milestones that many children of immigrants go through. And I felt like I went through all of them and some of them were amplified and really, really heightened. And so it's only been the last seven, eight years that I really began to um, unlearn some of the dysfunction of my home and my culture and to relearn and re-embrace what it means to be Korean and the beauty of my heritage. I just need to take a moment and let all of that land for me and for the listeners, because I, I mean, as you were talking, I'm just trying to be incredibly present. And, but I was like, there's so many places I could take this and questions I can ask and things I want to say. But first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm, I, I, I have so much compassion and, and, um, and empathy for little June. And uh, I can't obviously can never imagine what it was like to, to totally be in your shoes, right. To exactly be in your shoes. Um, I, I share growing up in a household that was violent. Um, and I know you've never met me before, so you don't know anything about me, but I think, you know, part of the, one of the reasons why I do the work that I do is, you know, my mother was murdered when I was 12 years old. And I also grew up in an immigrant city in Lawrence, Massachusetts and hardcore just, um, so I, I understand this. I also came through, I guess what I'm trying to say to, to make a relation here of what it's like to be terrified as a child the world not feeling safe and then getting proof of it. The, you know, my house, my home life, uh, parts of my home life not being safe and then seeing it acted out, you know, in violence with my mom. And one of the things that you said, um, uh, I think it was in your, the article with the today, you said, uh, my family passed on both the beauty of their heritage and the hardness of their dysfunction. And um, because of that, you said, uh, I dreamed of growing up and being the change. And I think that's such a powerful thing. And I think, um, and I don't want to make assumptions. That's why I want to ask you. I can say for sure that my childhood has informed and influenced and inspired the work that I do. And I wonder for you, um, could you say that the, the same thing? What was, what was being the change for you? What did that, what did that look like for you? Or what did you yeah. imagine it to be? Karen, can I say, first of all, I'm very sorry to hear about, uh, you know, when you shared about your mom, um, just wanted to pause for a moment because I, you know, though our stories are very different, um, I just feel your loss. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that. And yeah, I think that, um, I can just sense, I can just sense from you. I mean, I think in, you know, the reason why I've had you on the show is that I discovered you online. I found you on Instagram and, you know, for those of you, cause I also record this for people to watch. And one of the, one of the things that caught my eye was, um, and I printed some of them out. So I'm just looking for it. So I see something like this, which to me is like old typewriter print. Right. And yeah. I'm like, Oh, is this, does he really, is this like a Canva template or is this really like a picture of somebody who loves old typewriters like me? And then I start discovering that you're a writer and I start reading your beautiful words. And I was just like, holy shit, 
Like I resonate with June so much. Like I'm like kindred spirit, you know? And then I, I, I recognize um, a deep sensitivity and a deeply feeling person. And, you know, this world is not particularly designed for kids like you and I, who I think feel very deeply um, and not just our own feelings, but, and again, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I don't think you could do the work that you do with the depth and compassion that you do. And I, I know this because, you know, I read all your, I read all the stuff that you post every day and, and I see the way that you serve and I see your tender heart leading the way and, and all the bullshit and the, and the fucking hard thing, like just the hard stuff that on a daily basis of mm -hmm. 11 hour shifts that you have to navigate. And I just think, um, one of the reasons that's why I wanted to have you on the show, first of all, because I just recognize the kindred spirit and your deep sensitivity and um, the way that you are deep sensitivity for all the dysfunction and all the hardness and all the stuff that you have been through. In my eyes, it has become your superpower. Hmm. And, yeah. and I'm just, um, I'm so grateful that there are people like you in the world doing the work that you do. And, and I'm sorry also for, um, even though those things shape us and in some ways we, we can be, be alchemists and turn them into gifts, it still was really, really hard. Yeah. 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 I, um, for, thank you for printing all those things, by the yeah. way, <laughs> and welcome. knowing so much about my story and, you know, I, some of those old books, when you held them up, I was like, oh, some of those are self-published and kind of like old chapters of our lives. When I look <laughs> yeah. at my old work, I'm like, oh man, I don't know if yeah. it, was, it was even, how, yeah. Some of those, I'm just like, Ugh, I, I don't know <laughs> if there's anything good still in those, you know, because we, we changed so much. That was my, yeah, that was my first one. big grown-up right? book. Uh, the Voices from a We Carry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And even now there's stuff I look at that. I mean, you know, but that's, that's the that's the thing of being a writer, right? The slog yeah. of it is looking back and going, oh, I've evolved, I've changed. I don't know if I think that anymore. I would never have said that now, you know, all of that. Yeah, yeah, especially with chaplaincy, there was just almost a, not even by choice, like a warp speed growth because of all the things that we see. And so even stuff I've written maybe two, three years ago, even, I'm just like, woof, maybe I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's, should I archive that? Should I just delete it? So it's no, <laughs> so I don't have to look at it. Yeah, um, but thank you for saying all of that and really honored. And I did want to take a moment to pause because when someone tells me anything like that, a loss, uh, a grief that they have, I just feel like I didn't want to just rush into answering the next question or into the next topic of conversation. So I honor your story and your mother's story yeah. and uh, the 12 years that you were able to have with her mm -hmm. and understanding that, like, as you said, that something like that, that trauma and tragedy, we used a, a beautiful word, alchemists, you know, we become alchemists of the pain that happened. And ideally, that pain should have never happened. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe, uh, you know, quote, unquote, God does that for a reason. <laughs> and in the aftermath of ground zero in that crater of pain, um, there can be new growth. You know, I don't I don't think the pain happens for that. But in that, there can be growth. And that's such a fine, subtle distinction, but an important one for me. Um, yeah. And I, th I think the question that you asked, <laughs> and 
and please correct me or, or jump no, no. in at any time. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think you would, well, you had first asked about my childhood and then you asked a second question. Was it about the work that I do? I know that you, you yeah, had a, I mean, I think you said you dreamed of growing up and being the change. That's right. Being the and change. I, that's and right. I think, I think yep. to myself, like, you know, becoming a chaplet, it's not like, that's <laughs> like not, I mean, some kids like growing up, they like always knew they wanted to go into ministry or they grew up in a family of preachers or ministers and whatever. But I'm like, how does this is a question I wrote down? Like, how does one decide or become a chaplain? Like, what is yeah. that journey? And is it connected to in any way that childhood of yours? Yeah, I, you know, because it's it can be a very maybe plain, almost basic answer to say, like, I want to help people. I want to be the change. <laughs> And uh, I think in that interview, there was probably more I said on that. I don't know if it was included there. I know the reporter did an excellent job of taking the bits and pieces of what I said and making yes. it something usable. Um, but I did mention to her, and I think she may have put this somewhere else in the in the interview. I did mention to her that um, about the violence growing up and all the trauma that I experienced. Yes, I have that, that here too. Yeah, and that very specifically, I wanted to be um i wanted to be the voice i never got to have and wanted to be the ears that i never got to have and that was it's almost like uh you know you don't know what you need um until you it finds you almost and so i didn't know what i needed when i was younger yeah. and then when i got into doing the work of ministry and met other chaplains, uh, there's like a click that happened, you know, this is what I always needed. Mm -hmm. um, the technical term for us, non-judgmental, non-anxious, comforting presence. Yeah. Oh, That's I love needed, that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Very clinical, but it's, it's what so many of us need. And, you know, I did church ministry for about seven years total. And I, I loved my youth group, I love the college students, I love doing the work. I was just not good at the behind the closed doors church politics stuff with talking with leaders. And I, I just take people at face value. And maybe I just wasn't smart enough for it. But it's like, <laughs> I, there was all this politicking. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not good at any of this. And yeah. one of the churches I was let go, I would have stayed there till I died, probably because I just was so loyal to it. I was unfortunately let go. And I remember my brother, I was crying on the phone to him. And my, my younger brother was so kind and said, you know, not to be rude, but this is probably the best thing that could ever happen to you. Like mm. you, you don't belong there. And uh, he was right. Um, when I found chaplaincy, the difference between being a pastor where I was to being a chaplain now is, uh, you know, ministers, they preach, they impart theology and information. And there is a role for that. Um, there is a place for that. But chaplains, instead of preaching, were a presence. Mm. And that's what I was always more comfortable with. I wasn't really okay with any of the evangelical type of proselytizing and converting people and all of that stuff. You know, I'm, I, wis, wisdom perishes with us and I'm holding certainty and you better believe this or else. Yes. I just was never good at that part. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I mean, it, should anybody be good at that? <laughs> a whole different episode maybe, right? Um, but the, the presence is what I needed. Someone who was not going to judge, someone who was not going to hold uh, the things that I did and that were done to me against me. And so when I think about being the change 
again, a pretty plain statement, but for me, it's very clear. I, I look at my daughter. There's a long time where uh, in the beginning of my wife and I, our marriage, I didn't want to have children. I, I, I should say I wanted to, but it was a very far off idealistic thing. I was scared to have children sure, because I kept thinking, if I have a child, I'm going to pass down everything that I got. And there's a, um, in my book, the one you held up, the voices we carry, there's a, a letter that I write to my future daughter. And this was before my wife was pregnant. This was before I knew I was going to have a daughter. It's a letter to my daughter. <laughs> and uh, I write about, it's an apology, basically, saying I'm sorry for the story that I'm going to pass down to you. It's one of trauma, my mental health stuff. You know, one day you might wake up and you're going to be tired and you're going to be tired all the time and you won't know why. And you'll be angry and you'll be sad and you won't mm. know why. And then mm. I'll have to tell you it's probably because of me and I'm sorry. But in that letter, I write, you know, you don't enter the world as a blank canvas. You're going to take on maybe some of what I have, but you're also going to take on my good. And what good that I have, I'm going to try my best to pass it down to you. And, uh, you know, people talk about breaking cycles all the time, but that's a powerful thing. To, yeah, because uh, to be able to say, uh, I'm going to break what come, came before me. Uh, because sad to say, there are good things my parents passed on. But sad to say that, uh, you know, they didn't have the resources and they didn't have the access and you know, they didn't also have the self-awareness to seek the help that they needed. And so they did pass down a lot of that. And so how can I today uh, ensure that my daughter receives better than I and better than my parents? And that's a question that I keep asking, trying to have grace for myself in that process. Yeah. Uh, but both in my parenting and in the wider work that I do in my marriage too. Uh, how can I be, how can I pass on the story that I always would have wanted? Okay. I, I was like wanting to double amen hand you so many times during that. <laughs> and uh, I'm just like, take it all in. And I love that you brought up your daughter. Cause first of all, she's adorable. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you are most lit up and happy. So first of all, I want to ask you a question. When you said your younger brother, is he the one that takes all the fantastic photos of you for like your website and stuff? Or is that, do you have more than one brother? Cause you said younger brother. Yeah, I have a, so I have a stepbrother, stepsister. I, every, so this is a weird thing to say, but every once in a while I find out I have another family member. There's yeah. still family secrets being uncovered. It's just yes. a, you know, yeah. Yes. So it's, it's, for me, it's kind of funny. And it's also kind of like, ah, oh, geez, all the lost time. And of course there's another, you know, secret family member. But right now, as far as I know, I have a younger brother, you know, stepbrother, stepsister. But yeah, my younger brother and I are really close. We talk almost every day and he has an amazing camera and a great eye. He is the one who takes mm -hmm. a lot of those photos. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I recognize I found him on Instagram <laughs> and because when I, I get curious about a person, I really get curious about a lot of, without sounding like a weirdo stalker, but I was like, I want to know about June. And, and uh, so satellite, I call them your satellites, these people who satellite around you. And, and so I kind of went and looked up some of his stuff and, and uh, shout out to him. I mean, I yes. always joke around. He's the taller, better looking one, more oh. intelligent. <laughs> he runs two dojos, successful businessman you know, does really well for himself. He does bit parts in like commercials and TV shows. And, 
you know, he's just all around awesome guy. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And what's his first name? His first name is Hoon. So okay. I am June and he is Hoon. Hoon. Yep. Oh my God. Okay, I wait. got a, yeah, I got a cousin <laughs> name. I think I got a cousin named Kuhn <laughs> and another one named Goon, but I don't think Goon goes by Goon because that right. means something else here in the States. Oh my god. So gosh. yeah. And I may have a cousin named Moon, but I could be wrong about that. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I hear you too, because I come from a family of, um, my mother was adopted. So mm -hmm. I feel like I have people, I'm like, I, I always wonder about that. I go, there's probably people out there that look like me and, but I don't know them. I have a whole chunk of family who I don't even know, like quote unquote blood relatives or whatever. Right. And then, you know, so I have one biological sister, we have the same parents. And then I have two half brothers where we have the same father, but different mothers. And then I have like 20 stepbrothers and stepsisters. So there's wow. a lot, there's a lot of it too. So like, I, I keep seeing these parallels and I just find it so fascinating, but I want to, I want to come back to you bringing up your daughter because um, when I see pictures of you, to me, you look most happy when you are with her and when you are with your beautiful <laughs> wife. I mean, there's a, there's an innocence uh, and I think that's the beautiful thing about children is they bring us back to wonder and to awe and to innocence. And I can, I'm sure there's also like the incredibly heavy responsibility of I am responsible for this other living being now, but there's so much natural kind of joy that seems to happen in her presence in your life. And then one of the questions I wanted to ask you, so I'm glad you brought her up was, um, has becoming a dad changed the way that you work or the way that you view your work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, in fact, even my work has greatly informed the way that I, I raise my daughter. I think, um, you know, there was a, a while when I didn't want to have a child. And then when I thought about, I can break the cycle. And yes. yeah, and... There, it was almost like an overnight change. I mean, I went from not thinking I could have a child to wanting to have a child. And this may sound, this, this will sound strange, but I, I think um, when I work in the hospital, I notice how fast it all goes, you know, mm -hmm. not a new thought, but I've seen it up close, just how fragile everything is. Yes. I see the resilience of the human body and community I also see we're just wax threads in an oven. That's you know? right. Yeah. It could go at any time. Yes. And life is fast. Life is fragile. And, you know, there was, when I, when I see the way that resilience happens in the hospital, the way that cycles can be broken and that stories can change, uh, I found it is possible uh, that there is strength in being able to pass on a different story. So yeah, I would say a lot of my work did inform the way that I raised my daughter. Also, <laughs> having a daughter, of course, definitely informs the way I do my work. I have to say, I'm very, very lucky. My two-year-old, she is a saint. She is just an angel. <laughs> I mean, so much empathy. She's the like laughing all the time, constantly joyful, optimistic. Yes. Um, you know, if she ever sees me in pain, cause I have like knee problems and all, all kinds of weird, like pain, pains in my body, she'll start like rubbing my leg or something, or, you know, lately she's been talking a lot more. So 
I, I've told her anytime she cries, I always say the same thing. I say, it's okay to cry. I'll pick her up. I say, it's okay to cry. And then lately she's been telling me that <laughs> if, oh I'm, my gosh. if I'm leaning over. And the other day she had a little play date with one of my friends or a couple. Um, uh, we were having a play date with their son, their two-year-old. And he started crying because he fell over. And she runs over to him, my daughter. She runs over to him and says, it's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. Oh. And uh, yeah, isn't there isn't there something in that about, you know, reflecting and mirroring back and almost instructing in a way, because one of the things I noticed in the hospital and this is probably I, I'm going to try to circle this all back to parenting. I had this experience in the hospital um, more than once where when I escort family back to see their loved one, let's say there's a patient who came in from a car accident or something like that. I escort family back, but I can only take a few back at a time. Um, and then I have to kind of switch them out. There's like COVID protocols and then there's like the size of the room and all of that. Yeah. And so the first time I took this, these few family members back, I told them, I always preface, I always say, um, when you see your loved one, they're not going to look the way you remember. They're attached to a lot of machines right now. There's a lot of things keeping them alive. And I just want you to know that it may be very uh, hard to see at first. And I, I just want you to know so that when you come in, it's not a sudden shock. So I, I always try to gently kind of preface that because I, I don't want to just bring them in without any knowledge of what they're going to look like. And so when I did that, we went back and then there was the daughter of the patient and I'm changing some details just yes. for privacy's sake, sure. but let's say the daughter of the patient, she was going to go with other family members to go back. And then she told them, I want you to know before we go back, our loved one looks different. Wow. And is attached to all kinds. She started repeating what I was saying mm -hmm. and I could just step back. I didn't even need to be there anymore. I mean, she passed on, and this is not a brag on me, I'm bragging on her really. She was able to pass on some of that compassion. And so the way that I, any, any story that I pass on to my daughter, any teaching, any kindness, I know that it's possible to break that cycle and I know it's possible to introduce new things, right? And so I see it in the hospital and I see it in parenting and I would say there's almost like a, a dual thing happening where the things that I learn in parenting, I can take to the hospital and what I've learned in the hospital, I can definitely take uh, to my child. And um, I, su I, I surprise myself a lot because I think my default is to be pretty hard on myself. I, and, I you know? have read enough of your things now. Yeah. I, I yeah. could say I, I can kind of agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, just to, just to like really overanalyze and pause and was this wrong and what could I have done differently? But there are a lot of times when I'm finding now, no, you know, the, the trauma is not the last word or, you know, or the way that I was raised and taught, those don't have to be what I am and who I become. And so, yeah, what I can pass on to my patients and to my daughter is hopefully what they need and what I needed. I could not love this more. First of all, you're a brilliant storyteller and um, obviously you're a writer. And so you have, you have a gift, but 
Tim O'Brien, who I've been lucky enough to, to um, meet him in person and, and um, listen to him speak and be in his presence. And he says, writers tend to be the kind of people that like to enter into the mystery of things. And when I'm listening to you talk and telling these stories, I think so much of your work, I mean, part of it is being in this mystery. And I think one of the powerful things that you were talking about is when you were saying that trauma doesn't have to have like the last word, I'm paraphrasing, right? But we get to change it. And that's, that's so much also of the work that I do, like this, your story to your glory, knowing that we can take these stories that have happened and they don't have to um, define us. They don't have to, they will certainly influence us and maybe shape us. And I always say that's going to leave a mark, right? That's going to leave a mark, right? So, but being able through your deep sensitivity, through your presence, through your paying attention, through being the kind of person that likes to enter into the mystery of things, you can have such a powerful impact. And I kind of think of that transmission that happened between you, you showing up because what you did is you modeled for that person, you modeled for that daughter to say, oh, this is, this is um, what's needed and what I'm going to pass on. And how did she know? Because of the way your words landed in her body and how it made her feel. It's such a beautiful and powerful gift. Um, and I, I think of human beings sometimes, not only just as humans, but I'm like, I think of them as nervous systems and traumatized kids, our nervous systems tend to be hypervigilant. That's that, uh, you know, the being really aware of our environment, the overthinking, the analyzing, all that stuff. So to be able to, and I also look at people not only as bodies and nervous systems, but I think of them as stories, right? And so for you to be able to bring um, that sense of deep awareness and really that saying, which says, um, you know, be the adult that you needed when you were a kid, you're playing that role for so many other people. They're coming to you in their most vulnerable, overwhelmed, scared, um, when they're like, want to curl up on the floor in a ball and just wail because their loved one or their child has died or whatever. I, I, I want to just acknowledge that I love that you take your responsibility as a steward of grief, as you call it, spiritual care. And then also as a dad, like so seriously, even with everything you've been through, some part of you, some uh, part of whether it's your divine intelligence or whatever, um, that you choose to show up the way that you show up. And it doesn't mean God knows I don't get it right all the time. <laughs> I'm not perfect at all but that you want to do your best to steward people and shepherd people in those moments. Uh, I know you described it one time that a chaplain is a grief catcher. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know if there's a question in there, but I just wanted to reflect it back to you, everything that I'm hearing. And, um, you know, you're often present in the, the, the I think you said, um, what, what can really be said to a grieving family in the, the worst moment of their life? And yet your job is to somehow find words, some words, or just your presence. But I imagine you have to say something. Hmm. Yeah. The right magic words. <laughs> the solve no for pressure. grief. No pressure, <laughs> right? So, I mean... Yeah, let's solve the, the Holy Trinity while, while we're at it. <laughs> well, let me, let me just... I want to... Yeah. I want to share something else. Um, I want to see if I can find 
the post. Um, I could do this all, all day. I could do this all day with you. But you said, I love this quote. And I'm going to tell a little story. That's why I want to bring it up. You said, <laughs> when I see patients, I keep in mind that I am a cameo. My goal is never to be a hero in their story, but only to help them be the hero in theirs. I am a cheerleader, a footnote. May I never be the center, not holding hands to lead them, but to be with them. I serve their stories. Dude. So I could wax poetic about that all day, but so in the past, whatever it's been, seven months, three of my aunts have died. And my, my auntie who most recently passed, my auntie Shirley, um, we went to go, she was a stranger to me when I first moved in with them, but, and uh, this isn't a show about me, but just to make a point. So after my mother was killed, I went to go live with an aunt and uncle who were like a stranger to me. Um, um, but so, you know, so we lived with, I lived with her for like five years until I was like 17. And then I went off to Boston University. Um, so from like 12 and a half to like 17. And so she recently passed away. And um, my uncle called and said, you know, they're going to do last rites. Can you get here? And so I flew down to Lawrence and I get there and I get in the room and there's the chaplain. And I'm like, so he, it was the exact opposite of what you just said here. And this isn't to bash him. I, I have no idea if the guy was on hour nine or what his day had been like or whatever. But I just remember just the way that he was talking it felt less about my aunt and more about him. And it felt almost more like a performance. And, you know, I just remember he was really tan and he had like big white teeth and it was almost like a shtick. Like I, I'm, I'm in Vegas and I'm doing a show and, hmm. and I didn't, I just didn't feel his presence. I didn't feel connected. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to be mean. I just remember thinking like, when people are saying goodbye to their loved one and a chaplain is a receptacle, it's like, you're going to hear what, like all the stories, what this person loved, who they were, what they believed in, right? Oh, this is so-and-so's daughter, sister, niece, husband, whatever is happening. And I just, I don't know what I'm trying to say, except that when I read these words from you, I just love that somebody is out there doing it um, a little differently. Yeah. And it's not about now's not the time to try and convert me to loving Jesus or to, to insert some sort of like, I'm like, is there an agenda here? That's what I kept thinking. Is there an agenda here? Yeah. Am I making sense? Absolutely. Um, can I say, I, I want to lift up and honor Aunt Shirley. Um, and I'm sorry for that. Definitely sorry for that loss. And also very sorry on behalf of that chaplain. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're not... <laughs> Some are made better than others, I think. Sure, of course, like all yeah. things. Yeah, like yep. all things. Yeah, and I, you know, I've I've gotten some horror stories about chaplains, and you know, have have heard my handful of yeah, those kinds of stories where, in the orange skin and the white teeth, I was like, is that Trump's cousin who <laughs> decided to become a chaplain? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I truly, I'm sorry about that, and you know, there is a temptation for. Uh, all of us, you know, when we have a friend who's grieving uh, to story top, you know, tell our story or find a way to fix it or to center ourselves, or like you said, uh, to flex, to show off somehow. 
um, as if that's going to be of comfort. Yes. And um, I think if I am to be completely optimistic and explain that for that person, you know, he may have been managing his own anxiety uh, mm-hmm. by trying to flex and show off. And that was just his maybe trauma response, or that was maybe his way of dealing with his own stuff. Um, that's a very optimistic explanation. It could also just be maybe he had some narcissism that he has to work out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up too is that to also help the listeners to remember that like people who are in these positions of help is mm-hmm. they're human too and they're showing up with their shit too and they're showing mm-hmm. up with their personalities too and their stories too. And I really get, I mean, I wasn't mad at him I was just as a writer where I can't speak for you, but we tend to be really observant. So it was more like standing outside of it, observing what was happening and just feeling more for, you know, my uncle and, um, you know, my cousins. And as they were standing, you know, watching their mother take her last breaths and being like, this is like just kind of being pulled way back and and watching it. And I mean, because I think it's like having compassion for him too. And what you're saying is that, who knows what he was showing up with and what his what his day had been like and stuff like that as well. Yeah, yeah. All we, we can hope that we can we try do our best to to do our best. <laughs> I you know, I think if I had been in his place, I would I would hope that I would do this because I know I don't do it perfectly, but I am trying to be whatever that person needs, whatever the grieving needs. So sometimes they do need a word of encouragement or some even a recitation of uh, scripture. Yeah. or some kind of comforting theology not always most of the time what i've seen is just listening to the story so i may ask something very simple like um you know how do you remember so and so you know or uh, even just asking how are you holding up right now yeah you know or for some like asian eastern families you know the language of love is asking you know have you been able to eat yet can i get you something um you know, because that, that is so important to ask. It's basically saying, I'm here for you. Yes. Um, so being able to ask that and centering the person who's grieving, because I don't think that this is too hard to do, but I think reading the room is really important. Yes. I th- <laughs> I, for some reason, for some people, it's just a lost language. <laughs> I don't know what it is about that. That is so... I. I I'm being mean when I say that, but I don't think it's too hard to read a room. I I think if you take an extra second, I I read a study somewhere that said finding empathy literally takes just a single pause. Yes. Uh, You know, if you take about two, three seconds and you just think about what, what, what the other person uh, might be going through, literally you can, you can switch gears right there on the spot. And the more you do that, you learn it like a second language. It's like learning music or, or, you know, cause I enter, as a chaplain, I enter these different worlds every time I step into a room or in the ER or, or at bedside. I'm entering a different atmosphere every single time. Yes. I don't know what I'm in store for. I don't know what's important to this person before I walk in, their culture, their symbols, their language, their stories, all of it. And so it's like I'm almost like a space traveler and I got my helmet on and I'm going in. I take my helmet off and I got to acclimate very, very quickly. And so as I'm getting used to this person's atmosphere, their language, what's important to them, my goal then is to serve them where they are at. So I rarely, if ever, self-disclose uh, unless I feel like it's going to help, meaning I don't really share my own story or try to story top. 
Um, I don't offer theology to them unless they're okay with that, that if they find that acceptable or even know what theology would be comfortable for them because all the patients that I'm seeing, they may be different faith backgrounds. Yes. And so the thing about, I was saying earlier about a minister, when they're a preacher, ministers come in with a certain theological framework in which they are trying to impart and transmit toward their recipients or listeners or congregation. I'm coming in assuming that the patient's framework in their understanding of what they're going through, I'm just helping a little bit to guide them in the operational system that they already have. Because my assumption is that most people who have questions also carry their own answers. 99% of the time, it's true. Yes. And, you know, maybe there may be a, a darkened room in their heart that they haven't looked at in a little while. But how can I just kind of assist them towards that little room and, and just turn on a light and they can find that resource? And if they don't have the resource, how can I bring that in a way with gentleness and compassion that is not an imposition, but rather just being with? And so I wish that chaplain there at, at uh, Aunt Shirley's, you know, wake um, at her service, I wish he had been willing to learn the language of the people around him, mm. you know, because the language of grief is different for everyone. And, you know, they say languages are dying every day. Sure. And I think that's one of those languages that can die very easily, but can also yeah. come back very easily too. And so my goal really is to elevate the story of the person who is gone. And then how can I serve this person in their grief the best, whether that means I'm just going to sit and listen, or I'm going to offer them the thing that they need. And so, you know, honestly, Karen, this is, I make this joke every time I do an interview, but this will probably be the most that I talk all week. <laughs> Because so much of my job, I would say so much of it is listening. There are times after a shift, you know, after 11 hours, I'll, I'll go to another chapel and, and we joke about this all the time. We're, we'll look at each other and be like, what do we even do today? I know. <laughs> you are working so weird. You know, I'm sure some it therapists, is. mental yes. health professionals, you you know, you do spiritual mentoring. Yeah. Kind of like, did I, did I you know, because there, there are several visits I've had in these last seven years. I'll sit down. I'll ask maybe two questions. And the patient will go into like a 45 minute story of what brought them to the hospital, then their childhood and all the things that have happened. And then at the end, they'll be like, chaplain, what you said, your advice was so good and so valuable. I remember forever. And I'll be like, in my mind, I'm like, did I give them advice? Because I don't remember saying anything, but you're welcome. <laughs> because something that you said, it, I mean, it's so true, right? So first of all, that's hysterical. And second of all, double amen hands, I can relate. because. <laughs> So much of what people really want is just to be heard and seen and witness and know that their feelings matter and that somebody's not trying to, you know, change it for them or whatever, but to be present. And I'm, and they do, people do. I think it was Emerson who said that, you know, God enters through a private door into the heart of every individual. And when you talk about that door, it's like, guiding people to the door to that place within themselves where they already have the answers. And that's really a powerful thing that you're doing when you're just listening. And I, I when you were talking about, I mean, seriously, June, I could talk to you for like hours and I know I got to let you go soon, but I just <laughs> feel like when you're talking, there's like, there's like a, a map being made in my head of these places I want to go. And I'm like, just come back here. But I tend to follow my curiosity. So Speaking about this thing where you, you walk into a room, 
you don't know these people's history, their trauma, their language, their symbols, what, what matters to them, right? Um, what you do have the skill set for and the capacity for, and probably that skill set, that muscle is growing all the time, is the ability to really like listen, um, to really read a room, to sense the energy, to feel, to feel um, with your spidey senses what, what's needed here, right? But you said something that I couldn't stop thinking about. So if you walk into the unknown, which is really what's happening, you might know the medical terms. This is what the body, the body is doing, mm -hmm. but you don't know the people, like who you're meeting in that room. Um, and this might be a, a weird question, but I got to ask it. So you being a six, so I've been a yoga teacher for over 22 years. So somatically the body has its own wisdom, right? So you as a six degree black belt, there's no doubt in my mind that you had to be quick and mobile and make quick decisions and be able to read the person across from you, their body language, their <laughs> movement, whatever. Do you think that being a martial artist has helped you in your work as a chaplain? Darren, I love this question because of the interviews I've done, I've only had one other person ask me this. And the way you asked it is different than how he asked me. Because it's in my bio, six degree black belt, but I never get asked about my martial arts background. Oh my God, that, background, I didn't want to, I, I was experience. like. This is an awesome question. I oh, never good. get asked about this. I get asked about my hospital work or being a dad and stuff. I'm, I'm grateful for all of that. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's such a cool question. So I would, I would say the, the martial arts. So your question was about the reflexes and being able to read and all of that. You can take but, it wherever you yeah, want to take yeah. it. Yeah, first let me, I'm going to say this, my brother, my younger brother, he is such a naturally good martial artist. He can think like six, seven moves ahead. He in conversation is just so good at uh, being able to anticipate a person's needs. I've never seen him anybody. I've never seen anybody beat him in chess. I was just going to you say, know? I swear to you, I was just about to say, I bet yeah. he's, like, he's got like, a chess mind. Like he didn't, you know, go to college and that doesn't, you know, mean anything one way or another. But I say that to say he is, it's as if he's gone to school like his whole life. He's just so good at figuring people out and yes. playing chess. And when he grapples or when he spars, when he's, when he's on the mats, man, he is awesome. Like in the ring, just he can see it all happening. Um, I, yeah. on the other hand, Karen, I'm not as good as him. I don't think I'm not, I'm not, first of all, I'm not naturally violent, I don't think. And second of all, I'm not very competitive. And third of all, I just don't think I have that natural skill like my brother and many other martial artists do. But I was, I did grow up in the dojo, uh, my dad being a ninth degree black belt. So I picked up on at least some of it. And I think the main thing that I picked up on, it's true about the reflexes and the reading the room and being able to see the things that are going to happen. Um, but what martial arts gave me absolutely was being able to embody myself fully Cool. You, know, you know, the idea of interoception when, when you start to understand your own body. And that's what yoga is good for. It's what dancing is good for. All of these things where you start to discover not just the limits of your own body, but its potential yes. and the confidence that it can give. And in some way, I wonder, maybe somebody can write about this. Maybe eventually I'll write on it. If the ministry that we do, the work that we do for mental health professionals, for spiritual mentoring, for chaplains, if there is a sense in which we are building courage, confidence, and an understanding of our own body, but 
even deeper than that, an understanding of our own heart. And if in some way we're coaching someone in sort of a spiritual gymnasium setting. Yes. Yeah. I'm mixing up a lot of different terms. No, no, I talk about, I talk about yeah. it. Like I talk about this very similarly, please continue. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are times I take on almost like a coach mind. Cause I, I taught for so long that I can start to see what is this person capable of? Where can I push them here? And where can I challenge yes. them there? Yes. And a chaplain's job is not necessarily to challenge, but let's say someone's being really hard on themselves uh, in their grief or in their trauma. And I can tell that there's a false narrative that's really bothering them. How can I sort of move and maneuver in a way where I'm not exactly disrupting, you know, in an interrupting kind of like a, you know, I know yes, you know exactly what I mean, right? I where it, I, I'm affirming them and validating where they are, but also helping them to see new possibility, right? Yeah. And I that, call that like the kaleidoscope where you turn it a tiny degree. Yes. Like yeah. New vision. Yeah. Yeah. So there are students that I've taught where, you know, they may throw a kick or break a board and they'll be like, I didn't even know my body could do that. And they're, <laughs> they're, they surprise themselves. And for me, that's like the most rewarding thing, right? As an instructor, uh, to see our students get the next belt, to see our students memorize all those moves and then be able to throw them with efficiency and with beauty. Yes. And so there's a part of me that really loves taking that martial arts, the discipline of it, the growth yes. of it, the building of a person uh, yes. to see what they are capable of and putting that into my own ministry. You could probably tell by my voice. I'm very excited about yeah. all of that. <laughs> no, but okay. So can I, yes, can I be, please, a little weirdo please. For, be a weirdo for a second? Okay. So like three things, maybe it's more than three, but maybe it's two, but okay. So first of all, I have to say, this is the most lit up you've been. So normally, like I'm a very excitable person, but I'm just trying to like kind of match energy sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I get really excited, but I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy you're talking about this. And I'm so happy that you're so excited because now I could let, let some of that energy out. But here's the thing. Number one, this is going to sound bossy. Forgive me for sounding bossy. Will you please write about this somewhere, somehow, <laughs> sometime, okay? Because your natural enthusiasm just tells me it, there's something here. There's an energy here and other people are going to be like, yes. Number two, I don't know why. I don't consider my, I consider myself very sensitive. I'm not saying I'm psychic or anything like that, but I have this sense. And if there isn't a sense, I hope somebody listens to this and hears me someday. I feel like you should have some sort of documentary or movie or something made about you and your work. And this, this piece that you, that lights you up so much. I think there is definitely something in, in relationship to martial arts and ministry and martial arts and serving the way that you do. There's a story here. There's something here. And I know, cause I'm getting excited as a writer and I'm like, Oh my God. And I'm not a document. I'm not somebody who makes documentaries, but if I was a filmmaker, I would snatch you up so fast. You and your brother and like this lineage of your dad and your parent, like there's a, there's a, I know you do these books, right? These incredible books and they're mm -hmm. stories after stories, but I feel like, I don't know if it's a memoir. I don't know what the thing is, June, but I'm telling you this heat here, this, at least for me, I, I shouldn't be telling you what to do, but I'm so <laughs> excited. And I just think I can, cause I think as a writer, I'm working on a memoir right now, but I think very cinematically and I see you in your life, even though a lot of what you're saying in your work is being quiet and listening and being present or whatever, but there's, there's a richness to this story. Um, and I just wish, I wish we had all day because there's so many things I would love to ask you and talk to you about this because your work is so important. And I think you're, you're totally different than any chaplain I've ever met in my life. 
And um, I've been in a lot of hospital rooms and I've been around a lot of, you know, people who are in the clergy arts, as I might call them, I'm right? Sure, and, yeah. yeah. So, and um, there's some really beautiful and powerful helpers. And then there's like, you know, it's like, you. I hope you take this as a compliment because um, he's one of the, I, one of the head honchos on what I call my spiritual team, but Mr. Rogers, mm-hmm. Fred Rogers, yeah, yeah. He, he's one of my one of my guiding lights and one of my heroes. And you have that kind of Mr. Rogers vibe to you, (laughs) which is a coming from me is a big compliment. I mean it that way. I hope you receive it that way because there is a, a deep kindness and a deep awareness and um, a deep acceptance that a grace that you extend to other people Um, and I want to read something from your book and then you, we can, if you need to go, you just let me know. Um, but this, I did, I couldn't let this pass without, um, two things. Uh, So I'm just going to read this one and you don't necessarily have to respond to this, but, um, you said, um, in your chapter called navigating grief and loss, um, you say, I was seeing hundreds of dead and dying people. And in my dreams, I'd see them in the hospital. I was a grief catcher. I caught stories. I made space so people could weep and vent and throw things. I caught bodies. I caught memories. I caught the dead. Even just reading that makes me, makes me want to weep. But here's the other thing I wanted to, I wanted to share. So listeners, this is, um, you, you have to get the, you don't have to do anything. You were growing adults. Listen to me. Don't listen to me. I highly encourage you. All right. The voices we carry finding your one true voice in a world of clamor and noise. Um, but listen to this, you guys, it might be weird to be read to about your own work. Or I, if you had your book there, I'd have you read it. Do you have your book close by? I don't think I do, okay. but right. please. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'll read it with writers. We're, we're years removed from our books because they yeah. take so long to get published. So I'll, yeah. it's like I'm hearing it for the first time. Thank yeah, you. This is fantastic. So page 197, you said, um, you're talking about this, the concept of letting go and letting go of grief and all this stuff and how death and, and grief kind of gets pushed aside. Right. And you're saying, I've seen the end result of all that suppression. I've seen men and women beat their own chest, trying to shove down the memory of the dead. It was what they were taught to do. Confronting grief sounds like a crazy thing to do, after all. The irony, though, is that when you bury somebody too fast, you end up denying what they meant to you. Then their voice comes back in all kinds of ways, none of them good and you end up disappearing a part of yourself too. When grief is buried, it doesn't go away. It waits, it shouts, it demands to be heard. Grief is a story gasping to be told. Hmm. I mean, June, it's brilliant, it's beautiful. And when I read that, you know, I think back to my own experience, you know, my mother's body was discovered um, on a Thursday morning at 11. And by Saturday, she was in the ground. And because she had been beaten to death, it was closed mm-hmm. casket. So we couldn't see her. It was literally like she disappeared overnight. And when I remember reading that line and saying, when you bury the dead too fast, and 
I know here it doesn't just mean their physical bodies, it's metaphorically, mm. but I, I've, I've felt the consequences and the effects of the adults in my life trying to navigate this awful, terrible, brutal thing that had happened and what happens. And I think, again, it's why I'm called to this work as well to make space for people's grief, to make space for people's stories, to make space for people's that whale, uh, that beating of the chest, that, that animal, that animal reaction, that somebody or that I love is no longer physically here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Karen, if I may, um, thank you also for reading uh, part of my book and for sharing your story. Um, earlier when you were talking about that, uh, movie or, you know, the story of, uh, martial artist and a minister, I guess, or a clergy, Sure. I, I thought of us, I thought of a movie scene. I'm a big movie buff. Me too. <laughs> I just thought of a scene in the movie where in reference to the passage you just read as well of, um, I guess a, a student who is in the hospital bed and they don't want to tell their story or, or they have the grief clogged up just in their lungs and it's just a knot. And in the dojo, we do this thing. We learn key up, which is how to scream, how to shout. So when you do a move, you know, yes. and sometimes the young students or adults are very shy to do a key up. And so, you know, we instruct them no key up when you do at the end of the move louder, you know, no, louder, louder. And we're instructing them, let it out, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. it comes from deep within that key, you know, Koreans call it key or Chinese may call it chi, that energy. Life that's force. Yes. yes. Prana. Yeah. In yoga, it's called prana. Yes. Expel it, express it, you know, yes. give life to it, just all of yourself out. And I'm imagining a cross cutting scene where yes. there's a patient in a bed yes. <laughs> and they're just choked up. And we're giving them almost permission and space to scream out and cry. Cut back to the dojo, that student, louder. It's okay. Yes. Key up, key yes. up. Cut back to the hospital bed. I know this patient wants to. And then they scream. Cut back to the student. He or she yes. screams. And you just intercut back and forth between this patient and the student. And they are doing a grief key up. Yes. Laying it all out. Um, and hopefully oh. my hope and my prayer is that, that, that I sit in that space, you know, of giving space to fully embody and express that grief and that key up. That is so fantastic. Hmm. The connection that you just made in the imagery. And I think, um, you know, we are storytellers. We are natural storytellers. We're always creating meaning. We're always assigning meaning to things. And I love how you just wove together. Uh, and I'm also, I lived in LA for eight years. I, I've dated actors. I've been around movie making. And I, I just love that. In fact, how old are you, June? I turned 40 this year. Okay. So you're, you're like, I'm going to be 54. So do you remember the Power Rangers? I do. Yeah. <laughs> I so, very much do. Yeah. So my, so my, my, um, I don't know what's it. My, my ex-boyfriend who I was with uh, right before they became famous is the original Red Ranger. Ooh, all right. Yeah. So he <laughs> was, but no, but the reason why I'm telling you, there's a reason why I'm telling you that is because 
um, that was the first time that I would really hear Kyops in person because he was like, <laughs> he was in many, he was a martial artist and he was in many things. So I can just remember those sounds mm -hmm. and how he would always laugh at me because I had the worst balance at the time. And I could mm -hmm. barely, I could push him and he would not budge. He had a center of self, a center of gravity, a center of confidence because mm. he grew up in that. Right. And he would always laugh at me. Like I would fall over trying to put on my pants. And I just remember being around that energy. And I'm just thinking about this martial artist thing, June, because it is such a part of your DNA. Again, mm. I just want to encourage you. I don't mean to be pushy, but I'm like, there's something here. And I do hope you write about it or talk about it or do something with it because there's a beautiful interwoven magic that happens uh, in these in these two arts because I do think that spiritual care I do think that as you call it whole making care I think it's an art form I think it's a skill set um, and I think that um, it's maybe not that everybody can't learn it but I don't think everybody necessarily feels called to it and I know I feel called to it mm -hmm. do you feel called to it did you feel called to it do you think I think so. Yeah. Um, it's funny because that word calling is so weird. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think of it like an you know? inner voice. Like you can yeah. call it knowing, you can call it a deep attraction, you can call it however you want to call it. But what I mean yeah. is like I felt a pull, I felt a, magnet a magnetic kind of pull to wanting to tell story. Like I couldn't not be yeah. a storyteller if I wanted to. Yeah. You know what I, I think, mean? You know, because I think, um, yeah, I mean, the answer is definitely yes, I feel called to it. And I think calling can change so much and our understanding of what it is. And I mean, I was sure that I was called to be a pastor. And so, and then it, it just kind of like, I was like, oh, maybe I wasn't, or maybe I was just for that season and then yes. it changed, you know? But I do know, I do know one thing. I do feel called to my patients, absolutely. And yeah. I am called to every room that I enter and every bedside that I visit. And so however it looks, you know, calling can change throughout a lifetime. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, it can, it can just, we can have several callings throughout our lives. Um, but however it looks, I always think there are central themes and there are our natural kind of gravities that we, that we move towards. I, I, I totally agree. And I do think it's a gravity. And, um, you know, when I was a little kid, uh, I've always loved animals. Animals have been my safe, my safe place, my deepest, one of my deepest connections to the divine, if you want to put it that way. And mm -hmm. um, animals were always a source of comfort and home and safety for me. But here's my point. So when I was a little kid, um, the very first thing I wanted to be before I knew I wanted to write books and tell stories was I wanted to be Dr. Doolittle. I wanted to be able to <laughs> communicate and talk to the animals, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I thought that meant, oh, I want to be a veterinarian, you know, and, and so that went on until about my uh, my freshman year of college. And and then I realized like, oh, well, I can serve animals in different ways. So even though I felt called, um, I think the vision can shift and, and the way yeah. the way that we feel called. I mean, it surprises. I can't speak for you, but my if you would have told this knucklehead from Lawrence, Massachusetts, this Boston kid with the accent and the potty mouth and whatever, that I was <laughs> going to be doing spiritual work, like I would have laughed in your face. I would have been like, what are you talking about? You know, so I just kind of love that mystery of where the gravitational pull takes you. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, I always used to say that um, my mother's the, 
my mother's gravitational pull was so strong. And she, I was just like, she was the sun, like to my, to my solar system. And so when I went, she was the compass, I say that like I used to kind of navigate the world. And so when I lost her, it forced me to discover my own kind of inner solar system and find my own compass and find my own gravity. But I, I do think that there are things in people and, um, work or art or whatever things that we do feel pulled towards. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy that um, I'm so happy for the people who, although they might be meeting you at some of the worst times of their life, I'm so happy that you answered that pull and that you're the, you're the face, you're the person, you're the hat mm. that meets them during those times. Yeah. Thank you, Karen. Yeah. There's a part of me that I know I have so much to learn and room to grow. And then I know that I don't do it perfectly. And it's that, that voice there that says, Oh man, you're getting praised. So you got to say something about, (laughs) that's why I'm saying this. (laughs) And, uh, absolutely. It's, I, I get this sacred access, um, that I'm always blown away by and uh, to be at bedside, like you said, of the worst moments of many of my patients' lives. And uh, if it took all of this, um, my story and experience to get here, then, uh, then okay, you know? And, um, you know, in five, 10 years, I may still be doing this. In five, 10 years, uh, I may, gifts may be called elsewhere, you know, wherever we go. And so I'm open to all of it, to wherever I'm called and however that looks, you know. Um, But yeah, I know that when I'm at bedside and I'm in that room, I'm called for that moment. Yeah. You know, and I think there's, if I'm to widen that out, I almost feel spoiled and lucky that I get to be in the exact place that I know I belong, you know, because not all of us get to have that. When I was doing church ministry, I, I was sure that I was called, but I felt so weird about like where I was. And I knew that there's a deep part of me that knew that I didn't belong there. Sure. You know? And so that's why I think the word calling is so sticky for me because there is a way to use that word where people kind of stay past the expiration date of where they should. And maybe they feel called, but it's, it's more of a, you know, that word starts to sound like manifest destiny or, you know, I feel called to be the leader of this thing. And I'm, well, maybe not, you know, (laughs) maybe you're called to be accountable to the stuff you did. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So calling is a weird word for me, but I, I can say, um, I'm, I'm like in, it is weird to say my coworkers, the place that I'm at, I'm in paradise. I mean, I, I feel like I'm in heaven. I was in such toxic workplaces before mm. that now to be in a place like this in a community like this alongside my coworkers, not saying the ER or the hospital itself is paradise, but saying that our dynamic and our my, the, the community that I get to be with, with the chaplains and with nurses and with doctors, man, I, I just love being there. And uh, my hope is that everyone can find a place, not perfect, but that is passionately doing the work and that where your giftings and everything that your story, your experience, your wisdom, your insight, the you that is you yes, can be fully put to use. And that, I found that that's rare, you know, 
it's rare and it's difficult to find, but um, be open for that calling, the place, the venue, the way that it's done, the change, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and to know when to grieve the spot that you're in and to be able to say, maybe I need to say goodbye to this. I'm past the expiration date. Yeah. I'm going to move on to this new thing and that's okay. Man, do I love everything about that. And I want to honor your time. And if you need mm -hmm. to go, please, you know, you, you just tell me there's so many things that you shared um, and things that I would love to talk to you more about, about mm -hmm. the internal and external voices, finding your voice about the people pleasing. Like you just did an event, I think yesterday with Maisha about, um, you know, uh, a funeral for people pleasing. I thought, oh my God, that's so fascinating. I want to talk about that. I want to, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. And I, cause I also know that you have been exposed outside of this kind of place that feels like paradise, this work that you go to in the hospital. As your uh, visibility is growing online, you, are, um, you have been exposed to um, Asian American hate. You have been exposed to people coming out of nowhere and saying really hurtful things to you. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole other, there's a whole other side to you about kind of more the public exposure that you get and the things that you're bumping up against. So, like I said, I, I want to go, but I want to at least acknowledge that I'm aware of those things and, um, um, they're important. I, they're important to you. Or I don't think you'd be doing events like that and speaking on things like people pleasing and, and, um, about finding your voice. And, and I, I just want to acknowledge too, that, you know, you said something the other day, um, that, that made me just think of what you just said about, you know, when it's time to go, uh, and they're slightly different, but this concept of it's okay to block people who are being mm -hmm. unkind when people who are coming at you in a hurtful or hateful way. Uh, and I don't know if you want to say anything about that or if you really need to just to, to leave, but I wanted to acknowledge that because I can only imagine that it can't be easy because especially when you are in a position where you're supposed to be quote unquote spiritual or clergy or chaplain or whatever, um, there's this expectation of, constant professionalism and that you often get put in positions where you're like, I'm not saying these are your words. Listen, this is my words of like thinking in your head, that's fucked up. Like you're using me right now to like put all this hate on me and say all these things and things I don't agree with. And you know, I can't respond. Right. Do you want to say anything about any of that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, that's a perfect way to, to, to finish. I, um, you know, I never used to block anyone at all. Um, I've been online for a long time now, and it was only the last few months that I just started getting literally death threats, racial slurs. Um, I don't mind disagreement. I don't mind feedback and criticism, but some of the stuff, some of the stuff was just so mean spirited and condescending and, and sometimes just evil, um, death threats against me and my family. So. Um, there came a point where I think in the beginning, I really wrestled with it and I would give like a snarky response. You know, there's the part of me that just wanted to not be kind and just be kind of sarcastic. And, you know, that only made it worse. Sure. And um, I started to then use the block button, but I felt very guilty about it because I was like, am I taking this person's voice away or something, you know? Um, and then... Um, I've now gotten into the habit of giving a kind response and then blocking, <laughs> you know, um, and still feeling guilty about the blocking uh, because I think there's a part of me that does want to 
maybe not a good part of me or or just naturally wants people to be able to speak their mind, their peace, their heart, whatever they're feeling or going through. And when I get these comments, honestly, there's a part of me that is does feel like, here's the thing I really want to say to them. Sure. But there's the other part of me that feels a lot of um, compassion. Yeah. And maybe that makes me sound like I'm trying to lift myself up. Really, I just, I just feel bad because what resources or community are they lacking or what growth are they lacking that they could just write racial slurs or physically threaten me? You know, so there's a part of me that feels bad. And, but I'm also trying to learn to alleviate the guilt of being able to say, like, I don't owe you this space i don't owe you this platform um and it's not okay what you're doing i don't want to ever normalize that either there are patient visits that i do where this doesn't happen a lot but when it does it's always very very difficult for me because i i enter in a dynamic where i recognize i am the provider and the patient is the one who is in need you know they're wounded they're tired and pain changes people it can make them say things that they would never say. Uh, but there are occasionally times where a patient, I may suddenly feel unsafe. They may say a racial slur. They may lash out in violence. And I want to be so understanding. There are times I stay way too long trying to like console and comfort. Uh, past, and when I say stay too long, I'm staying past like your own, my own safety, right? At the risk of my own really literally physical safety but I, I just feel so bad and i feel like I, I maybe there's something i can do to help unlock something and there are times i've been able to de-escalate there are many times that has happened uh, but once in a while there are just times that i'm just like okay i'm, I'm just i just gotta go there's nothing else that i can really say or do and you know if i if i keep staying i'm just absorbing this trauma and the shrapnel and Whatever that person is going through, uh, I have compassion for that and empathy for that, but it's also not okay for them to verbally abuse and physically abuse. And I recognize, again, that power dynamic that I'm here and they're in need, but at the same time, it's not okay to abuse staff. It's not okay to abuse nurses, surgeons, you know, regardless. So there's a lot of layers there and I'm trying to be respectful of all of those layers, most especially the patient. Um, but I don't owe anyone my presence. Um, even saying that out loud is very hard. Yes, <laughs> you can tell right. I, it's paining me to say that because <laughs> I feel like I owe everyone. I feel like I want to be open for everyone. Um, but I know that it's not always safe. It's not always okay. And so there are times where I need to draw the line and say, you know what, uh, that is not okay. So I do try to find times where I, as a chaplain, I'm going to stay, but I'm going to say, hey, I don't like this. I had one patient one time, and I'll, I'll say very quickly. Oh, I'm not taking <laughs> I had a, I had a patient once who he kept calling his nurse uh, a really gross uh, curse word. And uh, he just kept saying that because he felt like this nurse was not being responsive uh, to his needs. Uh, but the way he kept disparaging this nurse, I wanted him to be able to vent and be frustrated, this patient, to to be free in how they're expressing themselves. But I didn't like the word that he kept using, and I didn't like that he was just so 
it was very cruel what he was saying. Yeah. So at one point, I stopped the patient. I felt bad doing this. I, I just said, sir, if you say that word again about the nurse, I can't stay here. Um, I have to leave. Yeah. And I, I can't continue talking with you. It's not appropriate. And uh, he kind of gave me a look like, hey, you're here for me. You know, that kind of looked like, yeah. why are you, you can't say that. that but right. then saw my face and knew that I, I really meant it. And again, all respect to this patient and what he was going through. And he could, it could have been, you know, his feelings could be legitimate about the nurse, but he just said, okay, well, I won't, I won't say that anymore. And we just continued on in our visit. So again, I, I'm trying to find that middle ground building the bridge and that's not for everyone. You know, there's some chaplains who, if they left, they have every right to go, you know, there's some chaplains who they may not have wanted to pick that battle and even say anything and just let the patient say that. Mm-hmm. But for me, I try to find that middle space. And so, yeah, I'm always trying to find that on my platform or in my ministry. Um, how can I build that bridge and have compassion for that person? And then also know for myself, okay, here's where I need to protect my energy and it's okay for me to go. So... I just feel that in my, you know, I just feel all that in my body and I want to, um, first of all, I just, I mean, I haven't done it to you, but I, I, it's important to me to just say, I'm so sorry that, um, that people do say terrible and hateful and racist and evil things. Nobody deserves that. Um, and especially when they're showing up and the capacity to try to help or, you know, create space for support or healing or whatever. It just, you know, that's one of the things that um, I really struggle with. Um, oh, do I struggle? Or it's, it's, it's a thing that like, I very much have a big button around um, not on my watch, right? So like, <laughs> I think one of the things why I, I, I like being a spiritual mentor and that there's nobody over me. I'm my own boss. I don't work for some place, something, whatever. So my words are my words. And I'm like, who are you going to report me to? Me, my boss, I'm the boss, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I have a really hard time. Um, I have a really hard time not speaking up when I see an injustice. And I understand I, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I respect your level of discipline. I respect your, your, um, Man, I respect how sometimes it must be really hard <laughs> and when you're trying to find that middle ground and you're trying to figure out, well, okay, where's the boundary? Where's the edge? Where did we tip from? I'm aware of their pain and I want to hold that space and I want to see them and support them into, okay, this is no longer okay. That, that must be like, you know, that game of lava when you're kids, like, when does the floor get too hot? <laughs> like, when do I say something? So I just want to acknowledge that that takes a certain amount of courage and um, willingness and whatever. So I don't think that anybody just has the right to say anything they want, even if they're in pain. I used to make a lot of excuses for people who did shitty things because I understood their backstory. Mm -hmm. And so I I let a lot of stuff happen that I probably never should have, you know what I mean? So I think now as I'm, you know, about to turn 54, my, my um, willingness to be anybody's punching bag and my willingness to create spaces where those things can be said about other people, especially in my presence, 
And I just, I feel for you because I also have that, again, that wicked sensitive part of me that I can see past the behavior to the wound or to the story or why they might be acting that way. And man, that's a challenging landscape and minefield to navigate. I can only imagine sometimes in your capacity. So I just want to acknowledge that I love both that you hang in there and you try to help. And I also love that you're starting to block people. And I really like that you're starting to like build that muscle even more and knowing what feels right for you. I think it's so important because otherwise we can feel beaten down. We can get burnt out. We can feel like this sucks. I didn't sign up for this part. And you're just going to keep getting more popular PS, right? You're just, your exposure <laughs> and your visibility is just going to keep growing, which means we have more exposure to the unkind people. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm just, we could, I just want to say that uh, for what it's worth, June, I believe in you. I believe in your work. I love the work that you do. Um, from what I've gotten to know of you today, I always say I kind of fall in love with my guests and not in a creepy way, but just like, <laughs> I love being in your energy. I, I'm so happy and honored that you said yes. And just thank you so much for, for being on the Karen Kenny show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you, Karen. Thank you for all the kind words that you've said. And this was an awesome You're you you have printed out my words. I've never seen that before in an interview and, oh, and showed I, them back to I have me. so many of them. Oh my yeah. God. And I, I, I just, because I, again, I follow my curiosity. So when I find somebody that I'm curious about or that I'm lit up about or excited about, I want to tell everybody. I yeah. want to be like, go get these books, go follow this person, go find out about this person because they're doing really fantastic stuff in the world. And there's, it's so easy to tear people down. It's so easy to bitch and moan about what you don't like. And but I'm in the business of building up and doing love shout outs. Like that's what lights me up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, thank you, Karen. So how can the people, it's all going to be in the show notes and stuff, but how can people find you, June? How can they follow you online or find your blog and all that stuff? Yep. I'm on Instagram, uh, JS Park 3000. Those are my like carefully constructed posts. Twitter is like my real live thoughts. And like, sometimes I look at those, I'm like, Oh, I should delete that. <laughs> Cause yeah, I, I usually my Instagram stuff, I have a 24 hour rule before I send back an email, I wait about 12 to 24 hours. Smart, smart. <laughs> yeah. Social media, I wait about that long, but Twitter is just so easy to hit send, you know, and tweet. Yeah. So that's my real life stuff. And then I still have a Facebook though. Facebook gets a little, uh, you know, wild. <laughs> yes. Well, I yeah. get, like I said, I'm going to drop, I'll drop all those links down below. And I like that saucy part of you though. I, I like that you, um, that you, um, you know, you also get to be a human being and you get to stand up for yourself and you get to say your thoughts and your minds. And I think that's one of the things about, again, that umbrella or that cloak of like, Oh, I'm supposed to be spiritual. I'm supposed to be this thing. And it's like, you, you contain multitudes. You are multifaceted. And I think letting people see all those different parts of you is fantastic. So um, again, just thank you so much. And then I had to ask you, I have one final question and it's a fast one. Mm -hmm. Is the 3000, the I love you 3000 in your... <laughs> so one of my favorite shows is Futurama. Mm -hmm. And it takes place in the year 3000. But I think I picked it because 2000 was taken 
If I'm, not, if I'm not wrong about that, yeah, I'm pretty sure. So I just thought 3000 and also I love Futurama, so why not? <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. June, you have been a delight and a pleasure. And uh, I just appreciate you so much. And I always, uh, is there anything else you want to say before we go a final word or anything else that's bubbling up? So I just want to, is there anything I asked you, didn't ask you that you wished I asked or anything? Karen, let's do a part two sometime. I would oh love to God. do that. I would love to do that too. I'm so happy you're going to come back. So yeah. you guys, I always end my show saying the same thing. And I say the same, same thing because I, I mean it and I believe it. I always say, wherever you go, may you leave the people, the place, the animals, the environment, and yourself better than how you found it. Wherever you go, may people be happier for you haven't been there. <laughs> wherever you go, may you be a blessing. Mm. so much for tuning in to this episode of the Karen Kenny show. <laughs> I super duper appreciate your time, friendship and support. And look, if something that I shared from my heart today somehow landed in yours, I'd love to hear about it. So please tag me on Facebook or Instagram or IG stories or wherever the cool kids are hanging out these days and let me know what your favorite pot was or what you found most helpful. You can find me over at Karen Kenny Live. That's Karen, K-E-N-N-E-Y-L-I-V-E. -E. And if you're digging what I'm saying and you want to hear more, I'd be wicked grateful if you could go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review because you guys, that's how you'll help me to keep spreading the love. And if you can think of someone that could benefit from hearing this episode, please share it with them. I'd also love to stay connected with you. So if the feeling is mutual, please go to karenkenny.com backslash freebie and download my free guide to building your spiritual team. Until next time, my brothers and sisters, keep living in the fearless flow. Know that I see you, I appreciate you, and I love you. And wherever you go, may you be a blessing. <laughs>